Morning. Good to see you all. So just for fun, or just for uh, laughs, imagine that I'm standing up here with a t-shirt that says, I eat cows, they taste good. What is all this about? My, this just came to my mind this week. It probably has nothing to do with anything, but I'm going to tell the story anyway. My hilarious brother, when he was a teenager, became, uh, created, had a hobby of screen printing his own shirts. And so uh, because he had friends who were vegetarian who he wanted to tease, he printed himself a shirt and came to school with a t-shirt that said, I eat cows, they taste good. <laughs> Uh, now, I'm sure we have some vegetarians out there, some vegans out there, and then we also have people like me that if you were ordering a pizza, you would want meat, meat, and more meat. But we can all get along, right? It's okay. We can all get along this morning, no matter what our dietary choices are. <clears throat> Last Sunday, we kicked off a new teaching series called Thriving in Babylon. And um, <clears throat> what does our diet have to do with uh, how we can thrive in Babylon? Well, maybe we'll see. We'll see. Grab your Bible. Man, I don't know where my voice went already. Grab your Bible and open to Daniel chapter 1. Uh, if you're flipping through the books of your Old Testament, you're going to see Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. And then you're going to come to Daniel, kind of toward the back of your Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Then you'll find Daniel. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. <clears throat> All right. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here. And as we get started this morning, we are... <clears throat> excuse me. Mm, man, I guess you're just going to get an excited, exciting voice this morning that who knows what it'll do. Um, as we get started this morning, we are going to very quickly review the few verses that we... Um, covered last Sunday as we started this series, and then we will uh, keep going through the rest of chapter one uh, for this morning's um, passage. So a quick review, Daniel chapter one, uh, starting at verse one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, God's people, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And some of the sacred vessels of the house of God, and, and Nebuchadnezzar brought those sacred vessels from the house of God to the land of Shinar, to the house of his false god, and he placed the vessels in the treasury, uh, in the treasury of his god. So we have Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, laying siege to Jerusalem, um, uh, the, Jerusalem falls, God's people fall and are, and are carried off into exile into the land of Babylon. And last sum, uh, Sunday, we summarized what a terrible situation this was uh, in these three ways, that as God's people were carried off into Babylon, they experienced a ruthless, evil, godless king. Uh, the, the teenagers that are the main characters, the main people in our story uh, are... Uh, exposed to this godless, uh, even satanic system of education, and just overall what they were, God's people were carried off into was a spiritually hostile environment. But as we noted last Sunday, verse 2 gave us just a little glimpse of hope. In verse, as the beginning of verse 2, it says, and the Lord gave. 
So even we, we, we reminded ourselves, we reminded each other that even in difficult circumstances, even in a situation we wouldn't want, we wouldn't wish upon anyone, uh, even with things not going the way of, for God's people, it would, it would seemingly be out of God's control. But no, Daniel sees God's hand. He writes in verse 2, and, and the Lord gave. It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar in control of history. It was God guiding all the events and activities and people. And so our series is called Thriving in, How to Th- uh, Thriving in Babylon because we're watching Daniel and friends uh, in this book of the Bible, and we're asking God to show us how we too can live for God in a godless culture. Not just survive, not just get by it, it, when things are anti-God around us, not, not fight against it and thrash and cause a scene and, and, and take it upon ourselves to beat back the culture, not flee, not run away in fear and hide our heads in the sand, but, but live for God in the midst of a godless culture. Ask God to give us the strength and, and, and by him living within us, the grace uh, to interact with our world in a way that points to Jesus. So that's why the series is called Thriving in Babylon. So let's keep going in our passage. Verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, of God's people, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths. Remember, we said these uh, Daniel and friends were probably teenagers at the time of the exile. Youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's place. And then what does Nebuchadnezzar want to do with these youths? Why does he bring these youths into his house? Because he wants to indoctrinate them. He wants to assimilate Daniel and friends into the Babylonian culture. He wants to uh, educate them and, and get them in line with his purposes so that he can benefit from their skills. And so Nebuchadnezzar's evil, ruthless efforts to indoctrinate these, these teens uh, went to an extreme. And they went to an extreme because what's Nebuchadnezzar trying to do? He's trying to completely destroy any of their own, their, their cultural or their religious identity. He doesn't want them to relate to their heritage, to their own true God. He wants to overwhelm them and indoctrinate them into the Babylonian system and culture. And how does he do this? Number one, uh, as verse four continues, it says, he wants to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans, of of his culture. And we covered this last Sunday that that the, the, the secular education of the time would have been full of satanic and occultic practices of the day. And that would have been a part of their secular education. So that was the first part of, of Nebuchadnezzar's efforts. Number two, verse five, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate. So another way that Dan, Daniel and his friends are trying to be kind of forced to assimilate, to be dependent on the king for all they need, they're being forced with this specific diet. Uh, a daily portion of the food the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And then it continues, they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So there was this process that was to go on for three years, and then they would serve King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 6, what's the third way that we see Nebuchadnezzar 
uh, force assimilation upon them. Verse 6, among these teens were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah, he called Shadrach, Mishael, he called Meshach, and Azariah, he called Abednego. The significance of this, as he wants to indoctrinate them into Babylonian culture, is of course that he rips away their names that they were given. He rips away their names that were associated with the one true God, the God of Israel, and, he, and their names are replaced with names related to the false satanic gods of the religions of Babylon. So those three efforts to indoctrinate the educational system, the diet, and, and, and replacing their names. Uh, as a side note, just because I found it interesting, I had a great conversation with my son Chris after last, sun, uh, last, last Sunday's sermon. Chris is not in the room because he's serving in children's ministry. Um, but he and I were talking a little bit about what he had heard in the sermon last Sunday, and he just made a great observation, kind of had a question for me, but really it was a great observation. And that was this. When we, have perpetu- when we, those of us that have been around the Bible and have heard some of these stories of Daniel and his friends before, when we have perpetuated this, these stories, how do we refer to Daniel? What, by what name? Do we call him Belteshazzar? Okay, we call him his true God-given name. And as we have perpetuated these stories, how do we typically refer to Daniel's friends? And Chris said, why do we call them that? That's their evil names. And I said, you're right. I want to retrain myself. Not that it's a huge deal, not that it's going to make it, right? But, it, but it, I'm going to retrain myself to refer to who? Mishael, Hananiah, Azariah. So now we're into today's passage. We're going to do as best we can to somewhat quickly cover verses 8 through the rest of the chapter. Okay? Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. So verse 8 says, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. It reminds me of James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Daniel was determined that in the midst of these circumstances and even with these influences and even with these efforts, he was resolved not to defile himself. He prioritized his purity before God. And so it's curious to me what he chooses to take a stand on and what he does not take a stand on. Daniel and friends seem to receive the secular education. And there is wisdom to be had in the secular education they received. So so they seem to have received the secular education. Perhaps, you know, and even as we read the rest of Daniel, maybe we could just, this is a little bit of an educated guess, but perhaps they answered to their new names. Perhaps they didn't outwardly fight back against their new names. Perhaps they answered to them, but it seems that they retained their identity. And perhaps even between each other, retained their names. So, so, 
So what are they choosing to take a stand on and what are they not taking a stand on? And I'm not sure why exactly he took a stand on this food situation because personally, I would have kept ordering the pizza with meat, meat, and more meat. And we don't exactly know why he took the stand here. Um, some speculate the food was unclean by, by Jewish law. Uh, perhaps that's some of it, but it doesn't explain all of it. Some wonder if perhaps their, Daniel's concern was that the food had been offered to idols. Perhaps, certainly probably true. Perhaps it was part of their concern, but it still doesn't add up to explain the entire situation. Some wonder if they just wanted to be vegetarian for health purposes. That was not a thing in 600 BC. So it's probably not the case. Instead, most likely, most likely, this is a, a, an indicator for us of Daniel's God-given wisdom. And, and we, I think that we see here some, some God-given wisdom in multiple ways. Perhaps God just gave Daniel and friends wisdom to know that there were some things that were worth taking a stand on and some things that weren't. Some things that were worth fighting and some things that were not. As we seek to have an influence in our culture for God, ask, we want to ask God to give us wisdom in that way. It, it sure looks in this, in this uh, true story that Daniel had wisdom knowing that small commitments or taking a small stand in various places along the way would fortify his faith, the strength of his faith, for when there was even more significant threats, more severe threats. May that be true of us, that we trust God to make small stands for what is right and trust him along the way that it fortifies our faith so that we meet challenges that come. And we see here in the story, I think, wisdom that Daniel chose a distinctive diet in order to maintain a distinctive identity. Even if there's no specific reason he was avoiding the king's food, he and his friends decided to set themselves apart make themselves unique, depend on God's provision for their health rather than becoming dependent on Nebuchadnezzar. So every time they ate, every time they would eat, they would be reminded of their need for God and not their dependence on the plentiful bounty of the king's table. Even though the king's table probably had the pizza with meat, meat, and more meat. Okay, I'm stuck on that, my bad. Daniel and friends didn't allow themselves to be assimilated. They didn't lose their identity as God's people, but they also didn't outwardly revolt, violently throw back the culture, uh, become, become obnoxious to the culture in their behavior. They, 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 they took a stand for God, they did not allow assimilation. They re retained their identity as God's people, but they didn't become sickening to the culture so the culture would re reject them. Because why? Because we're going to see as we continue this morning that God has purposes for them in their culture to be a blessing and an influence to the culture. Uh, okay. So, they didn't, so instead they chose uh, spots thoughtfully where they could stand firm and, and make it clear who they were dependent on. So let's continue in the passage, halfway through verse 8. So the beginning of verse 8 says that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food and drink. And then as verse 8 continues, it says, 
Therefore, Daniel asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to not defile himself. So he had this internal stand he was going to make. I need to not defile myself. I want to set myself apart as different for God. And he didn't just have that internal conviction. He was willing to act on it. He went to an official and said, okay, I need your help to not, so that I don't have to defile myself. And one of the commentators that I was studying this week wrote this, don't underestimate the strength and character of faith it took for this teenager to make that decision. Don't underestimate the strength of character and faith it took for him to make that decision and be willing to go to an official and be willing to go against what he was instructed to do. Where did this resolve come from? Where did this strength inside of Daniel come from? And I think it should prompt us to ask these questions for in our own situation, in our own day, and in our own church family. What kind of young people are we raising up? And are we sharing the responsibility? Are we, are we all, are we all faith church family sharing the responsibility of training up the next generation of Jesus followers? What, where did Daniel's resolve come from? Well, Daniel was named, the Lord is my judge. So what we know, we don't know much about Daniel's parents, but what we do know about Daniel's parents is that they feared the Lord and wanted to serve the Lord and wanted their children to serve the Lord and gave them a name accordingly. So, so parents, faith church parents, do you know that you are the primary disciplers of your children? Do you know that the Lord has entrusted with you the significant responsibility of pointing your children to Jesus and helping them to walk with him every day? Parents, it is, you are the primary discipler. You are the primary trainer, the primary uh, shaper of, of spiritual life uh, used by God, with God's grace, with God's work in their life, of course. God wants to use you in that way. And we have an opportunity, church family, to pray for those that are parenting, parenting all ages, really, in the house, out of the house. God's wisdom to be a discipler. I think that's part of what shaped Daniel and gave him the resolve. What else do we know about Daniel and his friends and, and, and their background and what might have prepared them to take a stand in an appropriate way? I thought it was interesting that multiple commentators pointed out that when Daniel and friends were young, King Josiah was king of Israel. And Israel had an up and down history of kings that did not serve the Lord and did not glorify the Lord. And then they had some kings occasionally that, that would point God's people to trust in God. And when, when Daniel and friends were kids, King Josiah was king. And he was one of many that the Bible says did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And more than that, when you see this um, verse on the screen, we see that, that King Josiah was a, a king who brought about repentance and religious reform and prioritized God's word. Look at the screen. The king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord that he would walk after the Lord and keep his commandments and testimonies and statutes with all his heart and with all his soul and to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And all the people, what? And all the people joined. King Josiah was a, was a king who honored God and sought repentance and brought religious reform and made God's word a priority for his people again. And so guess what kind of church family of God Daniel and friends were raised in? 
They were raised in the family of God that was seeking to honor the Lord. And here, parents, you have that responsibility to raise your children to know Jesus. But church family, we, you all, can we also see ourselves in this way as the family of God with the shared responsibility of seeing that the next generation loves and serves Jesus. So not only, church family, do we have a chance to pray for the, those that are parenting, we have a chance to be spiritual parents. We have a chance to be spiritual friends to, to people of all ages in our church family, but especially to train up the younger generations. So it's a beautiful thing that we have parents that are seeking the Lord and trying to raise their kids to follow Jesus And it's also a beautiful thing that Faith Church comes alongside parents, that not only our staff, not only our volunteers, but all of you have this responsibility. And so that's why we're so thankful for those in our church family who serve along Debbie and children's ministry and her team. We're so thankful for all of you in our church family that serve alongside Jake and his team in in student ministry. And we're praying for God to raise up even more of you that would catch the vision of being part of God raising up the next generations in faith church family. So let's see, as we continue the passage now, let's see see the wisdom of Daniel's approach. How does does God-given wisdom cause him to approach the situation? He's They're trying to force him into a diet. He doesn't want to defile himself. He goes to the official and asks for a way around this. Let's see what God-given wisdom results in here. Halfway through verse 8, it says, Therefore, Daniel asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave, does that phrase sound familiar? We watch for God's hand in the midst of these circumstances. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. Why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? What's he afraid of? He's afraid that if Daniel and friends just eat what they want, that they're going to look terrible, and then he's going to be in trouble with Nebuchadnezzar, who we might have heard a bit about last Sunday and today, that is not a very nice guy. Verse 11. So Daniel says to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had. So Daniel turns his attention and conversation to another official. He said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Daniel says this in verse 12, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. In other words, feed us what we want, vegetables and water. Feed the rest of the teens what the king wants. Do that for 10 days. Take a look at us and then act accordingly. So what's gone on in our story so far? Daniel and friends don't want to defile themselves. They are expected to eat the king's food, but they are desiring to live for God and be a blessing to the people of Babylon. They want to be a blessing to Nebuchadnezzar, even in these difficult circumstances, even faced with all the evil that we've talked about today. They they know they want to live for God in the midst of a godless culture. And so when, 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 when they're trying to figure out what to do here, I want us to think for a minute, what, what don't they do? 
When they have this difficult situation, when they don't want to eat the king's food, when they want to take a stand, what don't they do? Well, Daniel could have, I suppose, taken that tray of the king's food and walked it back toward the guard and slammed the tray on the ground and screamed at the guard about this terrible food that's not from my God. Did Daniel do that? Okay, so he didn't fight. He didn't violently uh, attack the culture. He uh, didn't call the guard a loser. He also didn't run away. He also didn't flee. He could have chosen comfort, convenience, the easier way out, blend in a little bit, take the king's food, not make a big deal out of it, avoid the pain of standing up for what he believed in and who he was responsible to. He didn't do that. He didn't fight. He didn't flee. What did Daniel and his friends do? Well, what, do you, what do you observe? Go ahead and call a couple things out. What do you observe about the approach that we just read about? What did Daniel do? He asked. He asked respectfully. And then and when he got an answer, he didn't fight that back. He went and talked to somebody else, and he, and he gave a suggestion. What else? Anything else you noticed? Yeah, not, 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 a, not, a, not, a, not a violent confrontation, not a, not a loud confrontation. He asked, he made a suggestion, it was respectful. He was working within the system, interestingly. He was wanting to honor God, he was wanting to stand out for God, but he, but he works within the system. Why that approach? Why that approach? And what do we know about God's heart for his people in exile? I think this is interesting. Perhaps Daniel knew uh, about Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. The prophet Jeremiah writing a letter to the exiles. If I had read several verses in the same area, you would see it was addressed to the exiles in Babylon. And then a few verses later, we see this. But seek the welfare of the city where I have you in exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. This is an evil king, an evil, spiritually oppressive place, a culture that is a far cry from what God has called his people to. But look what the prophet Jeremiah writes to the exiles about God's heart for what they do when they're there. Are you with me? And there's more, jot this down, Jeremiah 29, verse 7, and then go, if you want something fun to do later, look up the few verses before this for examples of how to interact with the culture around us and make a difference in a positive way. But he says, Seek the welfare of the city for I have sent you, where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, in Babylon's welfare, is where you will find your welfare. What seemed like awful circumstances, what seemed like something we'd never want to happen, God's at work and he cares for his people and the way in this situation, the way he's going to care for his people is by caring for Babylon. By, by, by being a blessing to Babylon, he's going to protect his people. And so, church family, that, that we need to ask ourselves then if there's a similar thing that God wants to do through us. He's got you where he's got you. In 2023, in Dallas, Oregon, in the United States of America, and he's got you right where he wants you and right when he wants you, and he's got you in your spheres of influence, 
And I want us to ask God, Father, by your grace working in us, in our spheres of influence, how can we be a blessing? How can we live for you in a godless culture, but not just survive? How can we thrive in Babylon and be a blessing and a a positive influence for the sake of Jesus in our community? Verse 14. We'll keep going in the passage. Verse 14. So the steward listened to Daniel and friends in this matter, and he tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance. Everybody say better in appearance. Who is that because of? God's got that all under control. It's not the meat, meat, and me, more meat pizza. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So, so, so they tested him for 10 days. They looked just fine. They didn't look worse than those that were eating from the king's table. The king wasn't going to notice. The stewards weren't going to get in trouble. And Daniel and friends were able to take a stand to set themselves apart as distinct for God's people, as distinctly God's people. Verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them, well, how's that? Is that that phrase again? God gave them and the Lord gave them because in crazy circumstances, we look for glimpses that is clear that God is at work. Verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. The Lord gave. We saw it in verse 2 and verse 9 and verse 17. Daniel has hope because he recognizes God's grace. Daniel has hope even in this crazy circumstance because he recognizes these glimpses of God's grace, that God is present, that God's hand is active, that God is with him. We've got to remember, church family, that tough circumstances do not mean that God is absent. I had a professor in seminary who wrote a book called Thinking Right When Things Go Wrong. We need to remember that tough circumstances, suffering and difficulty and pain in life, in this earthly life that we have, does not mean that God is absent. We need to have a theology of suffering. We need to understand that suffering is part of God's work in the world to refine us and to bring about his purposes. We have to experience the difficult circumstances of this world, and we're invited to trust that God knows what he's doing, that he's at work for our good and his glory. That's why we sang a few minutes ago, yes, I will praise your name. Yes, I will glorify. Yes, I will lift your name high in the, even in the valley, we've, we sang a few minutes ago. Verse 18. And at the end of, time, at the, end of the time, this is the end of the three years of training and assimilation, I think. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be, the teens should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found, like Daniel, and who? Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Wouldn't it be nice if we got those names in our head? 
They're God, their true God-given names. But the king spoke with them, and among them none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and therefore they stood before the king to serve the king. So what have we had going on here in our passage today? Daniel and friends were resolved to remain pure. They, they were determined to, to not be defiled, to, to find themselves in the culture, with the people, and yet unstained, kept pure for the sake of the Lord. And so what did they do? They sought God's wisdom for how to live for God in a godless culture. They, they, they picked a spot. They thoughtfully, prayerfully picked a spot where they could take a stand, where they could make themselves distinct from the world and, and show that they were still God's people. And yet, here's what, stay with me, ready for this? Yet they did not withdraw from the world. We want, this is it's really significant for our study of thriving in Babylon, for our study in the book of Daniel. They, they wanted to not be defiled. They were in a godless, evil, horrible place with lots of influence coming at them. They wanted to stay strong for God. They wanted to keep themselves distinct. So they found ways to do that, yet they did that without withdrawing themselves from the world and hiding over with just God's people. It's, it's, it's us finding a way to be a blessing to our community, to be conduits of God's love, to be proclaimers of the good news that Jesus lived and died and rose again so that we can have life with him. It's opportunity for us to have a, make a difference like that in our community without withdrawing from the world and huddling with Christians only and crossing our fingers and hoping for the best. Last Sunday, we were reminded each other that our citizenship is not in heaven. I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> See, you're paying attention. That makes me happy. It was just a test. I was testing you. Last week, we reminded each other that our citizenship is in heaven, that this is not our true home that our earthly experience is not our true home, that we are just passing through, that we are made as followers of Jesus, we are made as citizens of heaven. And Jesus tells us the same thing. We alluded to this last Sunday, but I want to say it again because it's so significant. In, in, in John 17, in Jesus' prayer, Jesus is praying to the Father, and he acknowledges the same thing. Look at portions of his prayer. He says to, this is Jesus praying to the Father. He says, they, referring to us, his followers, disciples, followers of Jesus, they are not of the world. This is not their home. They are just passing through. They are citizens of heaven, just as I am not of the world. Okay, so Jesus agrees with our citizenships in heaven. He knows who you, he knows who you are, but look what he does. Does he say, let's hide them in a church and never have them interact with the world? No, he says, I do not ask that you would take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And then a couple of verses later, Jesus prays, as you, God, sent me, Jesus, into the world to be, a, to be a, a, a conduit of God's love and a proclaimer of the kingdom of God and our ability to live with God forever, Jesus prays, as you, Father, sent me, Jesus, into the world, so I, Jesus, send my followers into the world. And so our passage continues, verse 20. Back to Daniel, finishing the passage. 
Verse 20, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found uh, them, Daniel and friends, 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there serving with the king until the first year of King Cyrus. Daniel was uh, in this position, in this influential role because of God's work in his life for 70 years. For the, time of the entire time of the exile of God's people, Daniel served in the king's court. I think um, one of the commentators I was studying this week pointed this out again, pointed this out as well, but I agree with him. Is it possible that sometimes we think that when we walk with God, we're going to somehow be less important or less influential to our world? Do we sometimes trick ourselves into thinking that if we follow Jesus, and if we are known as Christians, and if we make appropriate, thoughtful, gentle stands for, for what is right and for who we serve, do we sometimes trick ourselves into believing that we will somehow be less important or less influential in our world? But we may trick ourselves into thinking that, but what does this story just show us? What is the example of Daniel? What did we just see? I think that in this situation, Daniel is quite possibly more useful to the world because he honors God, because he was desiring to live for God in a godless culture, because he submitted himself to find ways to serve God and walk with God and honor God while still being a blessing to his spheres of influence. I think that what we've seen is quite possibly that Daniel is more useful to the world because he walks with God. May we, by God's grace, walk with him and be more useful, be more influential for the greatness of Jesus in our world. Father in heaven, thank you, Father, that you are a God who is in control. Thank you that, as we remembered last Sunday, that you are a God who is in control of who is in control. And in this story, Father, we recognize that it's you that works and controls history, not Nebuchadnezzar. So God, thank you that you are a God who is in control of who is in control, and it's amazing to us. God, we, we study your word and we think, this is amazing that you used Nebuchadnezzar to put Daniel and his friends in a place where they could be a blessing, where they could accomplish your purposes in the world. So God, may that be true of us. May we just rest in knowing that you are a God who is in control of who is in control, of the circumstances that swirl around us, of the things that feel so oppressive and anti-God, and yet you have us here, and you are, are uh, for followers of Jesus, you live within us, and by your grace, we can live for you and be a blessing to those around us. God, would you use us as you see fit to be conduits of your love, to be proclaimers of Jesus's, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. God, we see throughout your word that you want your people to be a blessing to the world, to serve the world, to share the good news of Jesus with all people. Father, I pray that that would start for Faith Church right here nearby at home with those that you've got us in contact with, that those you already have us in relationship with, 
may we put ourselves in a position, in a posture of openness to you, of listening for you, of being guided by your spirit as we interact in conversations and actions with those around us. Would it all be with a desire to thrive in Babylon, not just survive, with a desire to not just hide or fight or run away or seek our comfort, but to seek your glory and to trust that you are with us and working and that you are good. We thank you, God, for your love for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.